I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure this evening to welcome Jeremy Deller and Michael Bracewell. Jeremy Deller, as you all know, is a conceptual video and installation artist. He won the Turner Prize in 2004 and represented the UK at the Venice Biennale in 2013. Tonight we're here to celebrate his new book, Art is Magic, just out from Cheerio Publishing, which is an attempt to draw together the themes and the threads from across his career and across his projects. He'll be in conversation this evening with Michael Bracewell, the novelist and cultural commentator, whose most recent novel, his first for 21 years, is Unfinished Business. Um, they'll be in conversation uh, for a bit, following which there'll be time for questions from the floor with this, the roving mic, following which there'll be time uh, for buying books and getting books signed and that. And that concludes the housekeeping bit. And uh, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, thank you all so much for coming this evening. It's a massive pleasure for me, as well as a great honor, to be talking with Jeremy Della. I mean, it, it's kind of ridiculous introducing Jeremy, because I'm assuming most of you know quite well what he does. Um, I just wanted to begin by saying that for some time now, I've been punting the wholly unoriginal theory that there is a generation or more of artists working today really, really good artists and very different types of artists for whom the history of pop and rock music is as important as the history of art. That if you want, pop and rock has become to the artists of the 20th and late 20th and early 21st century what nature was maybe to artists in the second half of the 19th or along those lines, as I say. Um, so I wanted to begin this evening, Jeremy, yes. by the fact that I was extremely happy to see the great Scott King and yourself were the two artists selected by John Savage to introduce the new edition of his seminal um, biography of the Sex Pistols, England's Dreaming, Punk Rock and the Sex Pistols. And I was speaking to John at the weekend and I said, I'm doing a talk with Jeremy Della. Said, oh, very good. And I said, he made a really interesting comment. He said, what's so clever about Jeremy? I said, what do you think Jeremy's art is? He said, well, 
What Jeremy does, he said, is he sets up situations, stands back and watches to see what happens. Do you think that as a working definition, that's a starting point? Actually, I think that's a really good... Can you hear me? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I think that's actually a really cool. good uh, way of putting it. Yeah. I'm not a much of a joiner in a lot of the time, but I do look at things a lot. When I go on a demonstration, I'd probably be on the fringes looking in. And uh, in a way, a lot of the work, the big work I make, is a sort of experiment, a social experiment, which makes it sound very creepy. But it's, I'm trying to sort of see what, what happens if you do this and then you do this. What's the result? You know, is it, is it 2 plus 2 equals 4 or is it 5? And so a lot of the bigger projects I've done are ones where it's just a, a kind of social experiment. Mm. And I'm interested in seeing what the result is, which mm. is kind of that can be quite a risky thing as well mm. when you do that, because mm. you don't know quite what will happen. It could be mm. a disaster, it could be comedy, or it could be dangerous. Mm. So. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a huge leap in my thinking from Jeremy Della, Scott King, England's Dreaming, Sex Pistols, yeah. to the opening of your book where you talk about the importance of music to you. Yeah. And I wondered whether somewhere, I'd like to ask you quite a, a lot actually about what your inspirations, your informants, your artistic ancestors are. And I wondered whether somewhere in that queue would be Malcolm McLaren. Well, weirdly, but when the Sex Pistols I, mean, I watched the Thames Television uh, interview mm. and I was just slightly too old to appreciate it. As soon as Johnny Rotten said, shit, I turned the television off because my sister was there and I couldn't believe uh. they were swearing on television to protect her. So I missed the rest of it. Oh. You know, I'm, uh, you know I, so I missed that cultural moment because I was so shocked. So I think I was 10 mm. and it was just too much for me. Mm. But since then, McLaren obviously is a, just a fascinating character, isn't he? And it's someone that I, I've become more appreciative of, I think. Mm, but mm. the reason uh, John asked us to make to do that introduction, and I think I, the reason I agreed, because it's a big deal to do an introduction mm. to that book, mm. was because it had such an effect on me as a book. Mm. English Dreaming was, I remember reading it, it's like, it's, it's like the history of Britain almost in the 20th century mm. or post-war mm. Britain. Includes art, culture, fashion, and music, mm. of course. Mm. All the things I'm interested in. Mm. And so I was quite honoured to be asked to do that, I have mm. to say. Mm. Um, and I, it's one of the few books I actually remember reading. I remember I was unemployed, and so I was reading it quite vociferously. I was reading it in bed in the daytime, yeah. and I, I totally remember doing it. Yeah. Uh, so it's had a big effect on me. Yeah. yeah. So coming back you know, to the beginnings, what was your art education, and how did you actually end up becoming an artist in the sense of someone, you know, who wins a Turner Prize, yeah. for instance. Well, it's not a traditional route. I mean, I, up to the age of 10, I was, like any child, I just made art and craft things. I used mm. to go to a museum called the Horniman's Museum and uh, do an art club there, and I loved that museum, and I still do. Mm. Then after that, I went to private school where everything was about results, so I immediately didn't get on with the art teacher mm. I mean really we didn't get on at all and so within two terms I was I, w I went to the pottery class I was I was moved out I had mm. to do pottery and then you know within a few within a year there's no art and it was, became art history mm -hmm. so I studied art history 
and then I went to the Courtauld. But I, I just wanted to be around art and museums. Mm. I love that world. Mm. And then from the Courtauld, I realised I was unemployable as an art historian very mm. quickly. And then I had this experience in New York, which we could talk about, or in London, and that sort of set me on that path. Let's talk about that experience. Yeah, we should do. I mean, I try not to talk about it, but I, I think you should end up talking about it. It's sort of a well, it's kind of it's a it's a great biopic moment. Yeah, it's like, well, I met I met Andy Warhol in London at an Sweet. opening. Yeah, well, actually, I met his uh, one of his sort of entourage at the opening that Warhol had. You might have even been there. I was. Yeah, yeah. eighty. Yeah, yeah, nineteen eighty-six, and uh, and then his very sort of. Uh, outrageously dressed member of his entourage said come and see us in our hotel was that billy boy no it was uh, christopher macros oh. chris macros his sort of personal photographer and fixer and i thought you know what i'm actually going to do this regardless of what's going to happen to me in that room i will go to that room mm. and uh, i went with a friend two nights later and we had this crazy night mm. more or less above board more mm. or less above board mm. but um we walked in, and I might have mentioned it in the book, mm. and Benny Hill was on the television, silent, and they were listening to a Roxy Music Greatest Hits album, which I just thought, that's amazing, because I, <laughs> I love that band. You know how much yeah. I love that band. And then to have Benny Hill, it just didn't make sense. And it, but it was like, an, it was like a, in a sense, it was like a, an art installation. Mm. And I've tr since then, just recently, I tried to listen. I've had some old Benny Hill clips on YouTube or programs, and then I put Roxy Music over it, and it, Mm. It's very odd, actually. It's very <laughs> odd. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, seeing it now. But yeah. uh, at least it sounds good. But, um, and then we, so I had this kind of funny evening taking photographs and so on. And then mm. I went to the factory because then they said, oh, come out to the New York and hang around the factory. I thought, well, okay, we mm. shouldn't really be doing this. And I did. Mm. And uh, so just being in, in his orbit, mm. however briefly, was a hugely significant thing for a 20-year-old. Mm, yeah. You know. Yeah. So. And did did that experience? I mean, I know you cover this in the book, but d did that experience kind of lead you to think in terms of making things? Or it's a good, it's a really good question because it was just the whole environment that I was yeah. interested in. It was just the fact that it seemed to be wherever he was was the most exciting place in the world, mm. or he he seemed to be having the most incredible life. I mean, if you read the diaries, you realise that wasn't the case. Mm. But to a 20-year-old, this looked like the most amazing place to be. And just the, mm. because the factory was also Interview Magazine, so he had all of that going on. And then he had a video production. He was painting there, mm. offices. It just seemed like a world he'd created. And it just seemed so glamorous, but also very work-driven. But very exciting for a, a young person to mm. see that working. Mm. And it's probably the most boring version of the factory ever really but mm. it was still incredibly exciting yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i remember you know sort of first you know thinking about your art and thinking that there's an aspect of it which just picking up on what you just said about a picture of benny hill with roxy music playing mm. and it's like you're putting two things together that shouldn't work but somehow yeah. they do yeah and in some ways, one of the powers of that is that it's aphoristic. It's kind of like a dandified form of art making because you're working with paradox, putting total contrast together. Yeah. Yeah. Does that, is that something which, I mean, obviously you, you don't sit there thinking, I know, I'll do that. But mm. is that 
something that has always appealed to you, the, the power of contrast. Yeah, and the absurdity of it. Yeah. So I'll get, so for example, if you get a brass band to play acid, acid house music, yeah. there's, a, it's, there's an inherent ridiculousness to the idea and absurdity, and you have to transcend that in the work. Mm. There's humour within it, and that's a good thing. Mm but it has to be better than just the joke or mm. the one line or whatever. And that's, that's the, the challenge really, mm. is mm. to make work that transcends the description of it almost, or the potential yeah. risk. I mean, the risk often is either it's a farce or it's too, it's always too funny, mm. or that someone gets hurt. Mm. Those are the two things often. Yeah. So, uh, and that can happen in well, the Battle of Orgreave. Yes where restaged, recreated mm. a battle from the miners' strike, that also has a kind of Monty Python element to it. Mm. Um, it has a, but as you say in the book, with the Battle of Orgreave, does everybody know what this project was that Jeremy did? It's sort of, it's kind of, it's like feature film scale, isn't yeah. it, really? I yeah. mean, to recreate a pitch battle between striking Yorkshire miners and the police. Yeah. And you say in the book that it did get to a, a bizarre point where the reenactors and the people who had been miners who'd taken part in the strike, it began, there was a potential for it to kick off. Well, it, 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 of course, yeah. And the miners, what happened was that we, had, we worked with reenactment societies, so we had about six, 700 mm. reenactors mm. who usually dress up in anything from literally Roman centurion to Second World War. Yeah. The span of history is vast. They do that most weekends. And so they were there but they were reenacting a contemporary political battle, a battle where no one was killed, but was highly contentious, mm. like a civil war, almost like a civil war battle. Mm. And so they were, that, on one hand we had those men, and then we had about 300 former miners and their family members. Mm. But the, the reenactors were absolutely, totally intimidated by the former miners. Because the former miners got together, hadn't seen each other for years, and the camaraderie yeah. was incredible. Yeah. And they were totally intimidated by this, mm. this male friendship and bonding that they were seeing. They'd never mm. experienced anything like it. And so for them, also, they were, they were fighting with and, a, and amongst people that were, were veterans of a battle, which they mm. never get to do. So it was a very unusual situation for them. And I think mm. they were very f worried by it. And Fun, ironically, the night before we did, we had a the rehearsal day, and the night before we were meant to make the work, um, the reenactors nearly went on strike, <laughs> which was kind of funny to think about, mm. um, because they were so worried. They yeah. thought it was going to start, uh, like a revolution was going to start mm. again, and mm. there would be some Marxist sort of event would happen. Mm. They were mm. very worried, and then, but, but politically quite naive as well. Mm. So, Have you ever felt or have you ever been accused of exploiting an overlap between sort of people's real social situation mm. and the always murky world of contemporary art, that it's all very well for you to drift in yeah. as super sophisticated, you know, social semiotician. And has, has, I mean, I don't, I've, I feel that your work has always escaped that, speaking for myself, but have you had? I have been, I have been, but I tend not to read that. You know, just don't read it. Uh, but with that work especially, it was quite interesting because I'd go up to Yorkshire, meet miners, former miners, the family members, have big meetings. And the fact that I was an artist, they didn't care about. They were interested in the idea and the fact that this thing was going to happen. And they were intrigued by it. They saw the humour in it. And then they questioned me about why. And I, I yeah. knew why. So that's fine. 
I'd go back to London, you talk to people in London, some quite high profile people, you tell them, they say, what are you doing? I tell them, and they just say, mm. don't do it, stop it, that's terrible. Mm. So people in London were really anti as an idea, but people actually, where it happened, were actually okay, were okay with it, they instinctively understood the, the value mm. of it in a way. Mm. Mm. But, um, but yeah, of course you get anything that involves the public, you'll get accused of exploiting yeah. them. Yeah. That's so, it. It's, it's interesting, I mean, I remember reading in the book again, it's um, the where you talk about acid brass. Yeah. And I've always felt that in the context of your art, acid brass was a bit like your equivalent of when Gilbert and George did the singing sculpture. You know, it was a sort of, it was a defining work in a lot of ways and one attracted a huge amount of attention. And it also did that thing which is very, very difficult to do in any art form, which is where you get the people who listen to music, for instance, to join the people who read books. You know, to get those two worlds together. Yeah. Something I always felt that ja uh, Derek Jarman managed, Kathy Acker managed in a different sort of way. But you do talk about the fiercely competitive world of brass bands. Yeah. And that suddenly you're not dealing with a high art concept, you're dealing with people who play trumpets. Yeah. So how did you negotiate all that? Well, I mean... A lot of the work I make is based on people, usually managers or people with some sort of power, like a manager of a band, saying, yes, we'll do it. Right. And I was very nervous approaching the band, and it was the top band in Britain at the time. Yes. Because they're super competitive, like you were saying. They're like, they have leagues and competitions, and people get poached from band to band. So it's like sort of football almost. Mm. And I said to him, I've got some contemporary electronic music that I'd like of the band to play. I didn't use the word acid house. No, or you dance say because that had a bit of an edge to it, didn't it? Yes, because I didn't want them to say, well, drug. what's that? And they yeah. look it up, oh, it's, it's crazy drug music or whatever. So I was a bit cagey. And he said, yes, we'll do it once and see how it goes. Mm. And then you meet the band, and it's just a bunch of blokes, basically. I met them backstage at a concert in. Uh, Kenwood, they're just doing a regular gig, and I went backstage to a porter cabin, and it's just like 35 men in their pants walking around, just fart, <laughs> farting and like swearing and whatever. And I just thought, this is the, my idea of absolute hell to yeah. be around these people in a way. It's terrible to say that, but I'm not really good around groups mm. of men, mm. even yeah. though most of my work is, gr is mm. groups of men sort of fighting each other, mm. literally. So make out that what you will and then but then they all get together and they play and they play amazing it's like angelic music yeah. they play yeah so the band were up for it because they played to young people mm. they loved that mm. because a traditional brass band audience is really quite old people it's literally mm. people doing their knitting as mm. a, in the front row i saw that once mm. as these men are playing a lot of them very young they're playing their hearts out mm. got people doing their knitting and people mm. sleep yeah so uh, they were up for playing to people their own age, which was what right. happened. Yeah, yeah. Because it's very interesting when you describe one of the early acid brass performances in the book, you say how suddenly there's one of those moments where everybody gets into it. Yeah. And it almost became like a rave. It was kind of... Well, we, there were moments. I mean, there's one concert, of, uh, one gig they did at a dance music festival People, they go and think it's going to be a joke. They yeah. see these people in their uniforms, but as soon as they start playing, yeah. it's like, wow, this sounds amazing. Yeah. And they get into it very quickly. Yeah. But the first time the band played, they, it was at a concert in Liverpool, and they sort of shuffled on stage. Yeah. They were super embarrassed, and I think half the audience were there to laugh at them. Mm. But again, as soon as they started playing, 
Mm. You know, the air pressure changes in the room because it's so loud and there's people, you know, playing these instruments. Mm. And it was, they'd convince people within seconds that this is actually, a, it's going to be okay, basically. Yeah, yeah. Because the diagram that you did, which is very much part of that work about how would you get sort of culturally, you know, what ley lines would you follow yeah. to get to acid brass? Um, a, oh, there we are. Look, there. It's here. There. You can see it in the book a bit more clearly, but it's a sort of mind map connecting brass bands with acid house music. Yeah. Via all points, I noticed, from like psychic TV to, yeah. I, you know. I don't Super know. subjective, really. And, um, but did you do that? I have to ask, did you do that all in one kind of like flash of inspiration or did you work on it for months? No, I, this, this happened, this diagram sort of, sort of was in my head when the words were put together, acid brass, mm. because you can't, any kind of music can be played by any kind of musicians, but this is in a way is the conceptual justification of it. And in mm. a way it's, that project was about Britain and the, 20th century about how it had changed. Mm. So it's telling a story of change from mm. industry mm. to electronic, mm. digital culture, basically. Mm. That's what the pro project is. Mm. Um, this sort of leads into the kind of, the very, well, the, the all important political weave in what you do, mm. because it would be so easy for an artist working essentially in the medium of paradox to end up at camp you know, like Senor Coconut doing craft work or, yeah, yeah. or, or, or yeah. whatever. But as it is, it seems to me your art has always been about, within terms of English or British culture, class, yeah. the agency of class, um, and the different ways that those could be explained by one another. And it begins, like as you say, you brass band, you think North, you think trade unions, you think yeah. industry, acid, you think modern, you think something else. Yeah. Um, have you always, this is a kind of corny question, but where did your political motivation come from? Was it? I think going Because to, it's in everything you do. Yeah, isn't it? I think uh, going back to the minor strike, seeing that as a teenager, you know, I went to a private school, which mm. was a very right wing atmosphere in the school. There was a school where Nigel Farage was two years above mm. me, mm. you know, and so it was, uh, and he was very much a product of the school. Mm. The school really taught you to, was mm. really, was uh, taught you that Britain was the best country in the world and the, mm. you might, the British Empire might have still been going on if, as far as they were concerned. And so mm. it was, those values were given to you and that took quite a long time to sort of um, work out, work out my system effectively. But it, I didn't really enjoy being there, so that sort of made me a bit angry about being there, and, mm. and I sort of never—that's never left me in a way. That—that mm. mm. that kind of uh, attitude. Mm. So, I never really fitted in. But then, not many people do. I'm—I'm I'm always very suspicious of people who say they enjoy their secondary school. Mm. I think there's mm. something wrong about that, because mm. mm. <laughs> I certainly didn't. And, yeah. um, but I think then, I think that's where it started, really, yeah. school, yeah. and and being. I watched a lot of telly as well, so I was always into the news and so on, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I wanted, I suppose, to, to touch also, well, on two specific things. Um, when you did the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, yeah. which was really, I thought, a triumph. I mean, that's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, that pavilion, and every artist approaches it in a different way. 
But one of the things that Jeremy did was he invoked, if you want, the ghost of William Morris, the great sort of artist and socialist, and made or had made the most incredible picture of William Morris, bearded, hard, tough guy, in the lagoon, ankle deep, picking up, it was Roman Abramovich. Ram, Abramovich's yacht. Yacht, and just chucking it because Abramovich had very disgustingly parked this horrible yacht, yeah. hadn't he, right by Bajardini, yeah. and as a display of wealth, yes. basically. Yes. And I thought that that was one of the most conceptually perfect pieces of work I'd ever seen, Thank quite you. honestly. And I it was a... There we go, look, here's a picture. I'll just show you, there it is. It's a, it's a, it's a mural. I didn't paint it, because I can't. I don't have a technical expertise, but a friend of mine who does a lot of airbrush work, stuff on motorbikes and stuff mm. and so on, spent three months painting this scene mm. of, the, of the yacht being thrown in the lagoon. And I suppose I was creating a contemporary mythology that Morris as a sort of titan, effectively, mm. as, a, as, a, as a giant, cultural giant, but literally a giant. And we had other material in the room about the fall of the Soviet Union, but also about Morris and the beginnings of his socialist journey, effectively. Mm. But I wanted to make that, the, 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 the pavilion in Venice, I wanted it to be sort of contemporary mm. mythologies about mm. Britain. So mm. there's another thing about Prince Harry and Killing Yeah, can Martin. you tell us about the Prince Harry thing? Because that gave me great joy as well. Yeah, think. well, it's funny. It was in the news again recently. It is, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, you can't really see. It's a bird. Of with, prey. It's a, it's a hen harrier with a Range Rover in its talons. And uh, it was referred to a story that on the Sandringham Estate in 2003 or four. Mm. It was observed by two people, two hen harriers being shot out of the sky. And the only person that day with a gun was, was Prince Harry and his, a mate of his. They mm. went out shooting and they killed these two very, very rare birds. And uh, I just thought, and it, weirdly, I got the story from the Daily Mail. Mm. Daily Mail's a really sort of anti, mm. weirdly anti-establishment yeah. as well. Yeah. And so I made this sort of story around that, about this, this killing. Mm. And of course, the talon that, it's a Range Rover in the Talons. It would be tacky to have Prince Harry. Mm. Uh, so it's just that's for me as a cyclist, the Range Rover is the absolute worst car in the world. And so it represents all the people that drive them, or a lot of them. And uh, yeah, so I was, you know, there's a lot of destruction in the pavilion. Mm. Um, there's another room about the war in Iraq, for example. But, mm -hmm. but that was uh, the central motif in the. Mm. And as you went into the pavilion, you could see it on the wall, even when you're outside the pavilion. So you saw this bird, this gigantic mm. bird, mm. Mm. which to me is important. And also important that it was on, a, on the wall, so it would be uh, wiped out at the end. It would literally be painted over. Mm. And yet I always thought there was an absolutely lovely touch that you could just get one made, couldn't you, as a visitor? They'd just print you, uh, yeah. do a print of the... Morris. Yes, and Morris and the bird. You could have as a printing station where you could which, take your own souvenirs. Which, you know, was a kind of art for all. Yeah. Moment. Did you also have Bowie in that? Was there was uh, quite a lot. There was actually Scott did the map. Yes, um, you did the ley lines. Yeah. Of the, yeah. With the Ziggy Stardust tour map, which was like these lines over a uh, map of the UK, mm. and then there were photographs from the tour and also photographs of news stories from each day of the tour next to the photograph of the tour. So a lot of, a lot of it was about youth in Northern mm. Ireland, but then youth queuing up or at concerts. And it was about the turmoil in Britain, mm. uh, but then the sort of imaginative uh, 
creativity of, of this tour and what it was doing to young people mm. and kind of blowing their minds, but mm. then also the reality of what was going on in Britain at the time. Mm. Mm. And um, so that was the last room in the... And we had a steel band playing Man Who Sold the World in a film, mm. so... <laughs> yeah. It was really... I was allowed to do whatever I wanted there, mm. more or less. Mm. And I had a banner that said, Prince Harry Kills Me, which we were going to put up. Mm. And then I realised, if we put this banner up, that would be the only thing anyone yeah. will talk about. Mm. So I took it out. Yeah. Because mm. I knew it would just get all the attention and it would... Everything else would just disintegrate around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the Daily Mail rang me up to talk about the show because they obviously wanted to do a hatchet job on me. Right. And I basically talked down the journalist from the Daily Mail. It took me about an hour to the point where they didn't write anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because I basically said, yeah, this show is inspired by the Daily Mail. They've given me all these great stories and it's been really interesting. There's a thing about war in Iraq, which obviously the Daily Mail hated mm -hmm. Tony Blair. So, it's, so I basically talked him round to not writing anything. Yeah, that's fantastic. It, yeah, it was quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, shortly before he died, I I did a. I remember doing a talk with Malcolm McLaren at the Swiss Institute in New York, and the conversation took an interesting turn because I was always interested in art schools, and he, as you know, went yeah. to five art schools, uh, ending up in Croydon. I think was the last one because yeah. you could just get a county council bursary and just keep it rolling, but he said. And I, this is why I wonder if this chimed with you, that for all the kind of tax-bitting, anarchy, situationist, chaos thing, he was essentially, he felt, you know, his heroes were William Blake and Ruskin, mm. and that he saw himself primarily as a romantic. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean by romantic? And he said, well, if punk rock was anything, it was doing the twist in a ruin. And that's a profoundly romantic yeah. thing. Like Jarman, obviously, with Jubilee is the set in ruins. Exactly. Yeah. And I was wondering whether that's true of yourself, because, I mean, it seems to me that you pay homage to great romantics in your work, mm. but also your entire project, arguably, is in the kind of classic 19th century kind of Shelleyan romanticism. I mean, is that... Am I overdoing it? No, I mean, I'd like the, I love the idea of that. <laughs> Do you think it's true? I think maybe I am. I'm not a political artist in a sort of direct way, that's for sure. I can't really do that, and that's not really my thing. No. So I think maybe there's, if I may say this, there's probably a little bit more poetry in my work than other people's work, or there's more playfulness, certainly. And maybe there is a romantic element to it. I mean, I, I love ruins. I, there's nothing I like more than walking around a ruined monastery, actually, in the mm. rain. You know, for mm -hmm. me, that's like heaven. Yes. Uh, or a stone circle, which aren't necessarily ruins, but mm. Stonehenge is a sort of a ruin. Mm. Um, so I, I love trudging across fields to buildings that are ruins, effectively. That's almost my favourite thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that usefully links us to your famous Stonehenge project. Well, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because it's sort of fascinating. That's a... I'll hold up a book again if I can find the, the chapter. It's, it's called Sacrilege, and it was, I was trying to think about... Uh, it was during the Olympics. They were asking for ideas from artists, and I was too late to give my idea in because I was distracted by something. I can't remember what. And also, I was kind of down on the whole thing, the whole mm. Olympic project, because mm. I don't like organised sport. And, um, but I had an idea to have an inflatable Stonehenge. Because mm. I thought, what's the most stupid biggest work you could actually make 
that's humanly possible. And also, I, I've said this many times, I also wanted to make it before Banksy made it. Yeah, I thought, this right. is a very Banksy idea, and I thought, I need to get there before he does, because he could probably do it. Yeah, but his would have spelt Burger King or something. I don't know what, I, I, I have no idea. But uh, I, I gave a talk in Bristol recently, I thought he might even be in the audience, so I had to yeah. be careful. But, um, <laughs> so I made this, you can just about see it, it's an inflatable Stonehenge, it's called Sacrilege. It's on the cover of the book as well. And it was basically uh, an attempt to make a, a, a very playful artwork about national identity. Mm. Mm but was meant you could touch Stonehenge and you could yeah. interact with it mm. and it would travel. I like the mm -hmm. idea of Stonehenge on tour, mm -hmm. but it would just turn up in your park and you wouldn't even know and you'd see Stonehenge on the horizon in the morning, yeah. just slightly moving because people are jumping on it. That, I love the idea of that, the unexpected yeah. nature of it. Yeah. But, um, but also what it says about Britain, what that structure says about Britain. Yes. Because um, yeah. so. you make the point in the book, which I thought found very touching, about the Druid who was there, the, a kind of a Druid elder, yeah. or whatever they call them, yeah. um, and saying that you were there and you weren't quite prepared for how powerful his presence yeah. would seem. He's here. He's called Merlin. He actually lives in Hackney. I didn't realise this at the time. But, um, <laughs> he did this ceremony at Stonehenge in 2019, uh, 2018. It was the 100th yeah. anniversary of English heritage owning Stonehenge from the state, right. for the state, effectively. Right. Right. And, you know, the relationship between Druids and the Stonehenge fringe community, as I, might, as I call them, and English heritage is very problematic. Mm. But he turned up and did this ritual with mm. about 10 other people, and uh, they all were dressed differently. He was in the gear, basically. No one else was, really. And once he started, it was, like, incredibly moving. Mm because mm. of the words he was using, giving thanks, and it was very, it's a very dramatic sight, mm. very windy with big skies and clothes were billowing. It looked, he just looked amazing. And the things he was saying, I thought, well, this is just like any religion, basically. It's mm. sort of making things up, but they are very, but it's quite uh, from the heart. Mm. And I was with some archeologists and they were really into his, this guy. Well, we're into watching it. And mm. then I realized that actually they're into it because they're getting clues about what may have happened 5,000 years ago. Mm. This, this man's reaction to the site could be similar to other people's mm -hmm. reactions 5,000 years ago. Right. There's this sort of, ins there's this something within us. We react to these places in a similar mm. way. It's, it's within us to, to mm. do that. And so mm. I was actually really impressed by, uh, by it. And I wrote to him, because I was putting this picture in the book, mm. um, just to tell him, but he never got back to me. Mm. He was on Facebook, he never got back to me. But um, yeah. but yeah, I was I was I was definitely it was poignant and it, I wasn't expecting it to be. I think no, no. I mean, I think the sort of kind of one was looking at what you do kind of diagrammatically. You can see that kind of history is a big part of it. Mm. Um, also, this idea of contrast is a big part. Like, I mean, what is the most solid thing you can think of? Stonehenge. So let's make it bouncy. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you before, um, uh, before we ask, invite other people to ask questions about two things, which are things of yours, which I, well, the first I found absolutely fascinating, mm -hmm. which was when you, which is maybe your Courtauld Institute background, when you put together Andy Warhol and William Morris in yeah. an exhibition. Yeah. Um, and I think I reviewed it for the Burlington, which is about, you know, the most kind of, you know, 
they have no sense of humour they're aware of, you know. Yeah. Um, but Which it's a great magazine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but again, it was sort of it was an incredible using the power of juxtaposition. Um, could you talk a little bit about? Yeah. How, and a, how on earth did you persuade the museum to do it? I mean, it's well, I, the curator at the museum. We were talking about these subjects, and uh, we kind of came to realize that this could actually be quite a good thing to do because I have a kind of deep interest in both these yeah. artists. And I totally realized I could make a show about these two men. Yeah. They have so much in common, even though you might think on the surface of it, one was a rampant capitalist and the other one was a socialist, but actually they both had so much politically in common as well. Mm. Mm. And their childhoods, they're both very ill, but they idolized, one idolized Hollywood and the women and men of Hollywood and Bla and, and sorry, Morris idolized um, medieval literature, knights and ladies, yeah, yeah. and they would, were obsessed with this idea. Yeah. And you see it in Warhol's work and also in yeah. uh, Morris, yeah. the idolization of men and women, yeah. these heroic characters. And, and then it just worked from there. They're both mm. prophets, effectively. They're prophetic mm. artists. Yeah. Warhol invented the internet without realizing it, in mm. a sense. Mm. And Morris is a sort of precursor of modernism, yeah. of the iPhone, effectively, yeah. and the way the iPhone is made and constructed. Mm. It's on his principles. So I felt they had a lot in common. And they're both deeply political artists, and they mm. were both interested in studios, but also they're aesthetic artists who love reproduction, love prints, love flowers. Mm. So there's that as well. So they, the studio mm. was very important to them. So there's mm. tons. I felt there's tons because, mm. like, both, as both artists, they both had so much, they were so productive. Mm. There's just endless amounts of information mm. and things they mm. did. Mm. And Morris was like a, con a conceptual artist, a contemporary artist. He didn't paint or make sculptures, but he did everything else. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, they both made wallpaper. They both made wallpaper. <laughs> they both loved this kind of fertile art making mm. by, by reproduction with flowers as well yeah. and just the beauty of nature and... Warhol hated where he came from. He hated the industrial culture of, mm. of Pittsburgh. And uh, Morris hated the industrial culture of the Industrial Revolution. So they're both mm. fighting against that. I think they're both making beauty, putting beauty into the world as yeah. best they could. You know, yes. Marilyn is about beauty, isn't it? Mm. And the aesthetics of it and the different yeah. colorways. So they're both, I think they both used beauty as a, as a weapon against the ugliness of, of, of uh, industrial life. Yeah. I see it. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mm. I did see a critic walk around with the, the, the most angry look I've ever seen on a critic's well, that's face. that's an achievement. Yeah, mm. from the Daily Telegraph, and just uh, was just scathing about it. Right. That's such, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also such a shame as well, yeah. because I think any exhibition that actually opens questions, I mean, it was almost my... Anyway, we don't need to go there. But the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I did find it... Um, I think one of your you know, most um, affecting projects was your uh, We're Here Because We're Here. Yeah. And I wondered if you could talk us through that because right. it's, it's incredible. Happily. I mean, I was asked to come up with a, an idea or to s commemorate, not celebrate, obviously, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. It's when the government was doing projects around the First World War, and there's a really big moment, actually. Mm. There's lots happening. Mm. And they were stuck 
with what do you do about a, a disaster, human disaster? 17,000, was it? 17,000 were killed in, in a morning, effectively. Mm. So I, I had an idea, I had it on my bicycle. I remember having the idea and um, was to, for people just to appear around the, U the whole of the UK that day in full uniform, just hanging out, basically, mm. watching the world go by, walking through shopping centres, starting at railway stations, because then you get hundreds of thousands of people see it. Mm. And they don't speak to you. They sing a song occasionally, but they give a card. If you pay interest in them, take the photograph, which, of course, people do now. That's all mm. the first thing they do. They give you a card with the name of a dead soldier on. And it was just this almost silent protest work, effectively. But it was a viral work because they moved through the body of Britain. Mm. Mm. And it was about a memorial traveling to you in your car park, your mm. local car park of Sainsbury's or a shopping center or on the, un, in the underpass or mm. roundabout, mm. we did that. Yeah. And uh, it was just on for a day, unannounced, which is a big risk when yeah. you're spending, cost millions uh, to do, I have to say. I don't know, they never told me how much, which is good. Yeah. I never want to know how much these things cost. Yeah. But um, it was unannounced, so people's reactions were absolutely real. They didn't yes. know anything about this thing, so. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't show any of the one of the pictures, could you? Because the yes. soldiers, they were, were. Did you use the same the reenactment society people? No, that, because they were too old. Right. So you, you know, needed young. You need young, fit men or young men. They had to be quite fit because some of them were walking like fifteen miles that day in full gear yeah. from like along the North Circular into London, being seen by thousands and thousands in of motorists. In full World War yeah. One, Yeah, gear. And it's, you know, it's not the best gear, you know, it's on a hot no. day. You can just, you can probably see it. That's a Waterloo station at the end of the day when yeah. maybe 200 of the participants gathered together and then... Um, and they were silent. They were silent and they started walking in a vortex, which is quite amazing actually. And then they sang this song and then they just dispersed. And the song is, we're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here, to the tune of Old Lang Syne. Mm. Which it was, was a trench song. It was it? a trench song, and it's yeah. sort of the pointlessness and circularity of it. It's just, yeah. basically, we're here. We don't know why we're here. We don't, mm. and uh, so I thought that was a, as a title, but also something to sing. Mm. You, and you'd hear it in the railway stations and shopping centres. You'd hear them sing it and so on. That's yeah. important. It was a great work. Well, thank you. It's not often you get a chance to make something like that. I never thought I'd make another work with so many people involved with mm. such a budget. Mm. I didn't think it was possible, mm. but it was. And mm. So I was very lucky. Yeah, yeah. gosh, heavens. Um, well, it'd be lovely if other people would like to ask questions, because go, go for it. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Talking about that last project, um, did you choreograph where they went? I mean, there must have been a huge amount of organisation required. Or did the participants have, any, have a say in where they went and for how long? Well, or? We used local knowledge of where it would be good. I know, I know where I wanted to go. I didn't want people to go to churches or old buildings. It had to be contemporary Britain. It's probably ugly Britain as well. Uh, that was interesting. Um, but it was, we had scripts. Everyone had a script. We were very worried, actually, that they'd get attacked for whatever reason. I'm a massive pessimist, so I just assumed there'd be problems with uh, uh, the uh, people being offended by seeing soldiers on the streets. And we went to Northern Ireland, and that was more tricky. We had to in inform political parties there, especially mm. Sinn Féin, that, by the way, there's going to be something happening. There's mm. going to be soldiers walking through central Belfast. It's mm. because of this thing. And they agreed. They thought it was OK. Um, but it had to happen in Northern Ireland because it happened everywhere else in Britain. When people mm. were killed in, from Northern Ireland, men were killed. So, But uh, we had, it, was very, it was scripted in terms of where we, where we went. And we had places where the participants would go and get something to eat and have a break. It was, it was brilliantly organised, and mainly by the National Theatre. Nothing oh, to do with right. me. Right. Yeah, we partnered with the National Theatre, and they partnered with all their partners. And so it was a, you know, it became it was a theatrical project, effectively. But we had to tell the young budding actors, you know, don't you're not acting actually. This is not acting. You're not mm. pretending to be anyone. You're just be, you're just being a person. Mm. And I think they found that quite difficult sometimes. Mm. The microphone. That anniversary was was jingoistic with an underlying Brexit thing, and I will be eternally grateful to you for there wasn't a a, sh a whisper of jingoism in, in well, I, what you did. I had a notebook, and in it I just wrote in big letters, "Avoid sentimentality," which is quite difficult when you've got lots of young men um, mm. wearing a uniform. Mm. So you can't. I tried to avoid sentimentality as much as I could within that context. Mm. And the Brexit thing is interesting because it, July the 1st, which was our anniversary, we knew we were going to do that years and years before the referendum was a week after to the day the referendum result. Mm. And so between the 24th of Ju June and the 1st of July 2016, we had this week of absolute chaos within Britain, which has sort of continued, really, mm. when 
Cameron resigned. All those things happened, and then the Tory party was fighting itself. Johnson went up, and then he didn't, and all of that. And so I think people are absolutely distraught at the, the state of Britain. And then when they see this work, uh, which is about sacrifice, effectively, but sacrificing your life for your country, not your country for your career, effectively, I think instinctively people understood that about the work. Mm. And it was a release for the unhappiness about Britain, I think, mm. because we weren't expecting tears, and we got a lot of tears from people. And uh, so it was, it was unexpected. We didn't, we trained people up for violent or drunk people, but we didn't, uh, for like people crying. That was the one thing we weren't expecting. Mm. But it's a risk, you're right, it's a risk as an artist to be involved in such an establishment, government-led, effectively government-led project, a Tory government-led project. It could easily go really wrong, I thought, and mawkish and patriotic, yeah. Yeah, because Dunkirk, I hate that film. And uh, 1917, I hate that film as well. The, the, all Quite on the Western Front, the recent one, I think is a much better portrayal of the uh, First World War, I would imagine. So, yeah, I, I didn't want it to have any of that. But thank you. Thank you. Um, all your works are very particular, but, you know, these themes of national identity and Britain and heritage do run through them. Yeah. Would you say that you had any consistent take on these issues or is it just always contingent on the particular project that happens to engage with these particular things or is would you basically would you like to say more about this running theme in your work or not possibly well i think uh, the theme it is consistent but i couldn't tell you what it is but it's just the subjects are consistent maybe and my view about them i mean it was very difficult writing this book. I mean, it was really the most difficult thing I've ever done. Much more difficult than getting a thousand people to reenact a riot in a field or mm. any anything for me personally. But I think they are consistent. And probably most, like most artists, like Warhol and Morris, it probably comes from childhood interests and it's just extrapolated mm. out. Uh, uh, visiting old churches and sites of sort of Neolithic sites and being interested in pop music which is something I've always had keen interest in and just has been in the work always as well. So, but uh, yeah, I think your interests stay, more or less stay the same from the age of about seven or eight, I think. And it's just what, what you do with them, frankly. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the, for the talk. It was very interesting to hear you talk us through your uh, creative process. Yeah. Um, in 2017, we went to Munster, which is a lovely small town oh, in yeah. Germany, and we went to see your, one of your work, which is Speak to the Earth, and it will tell you. Yes. It is a 10-year-long participatory project where you work with the Gardens. communities and curate yeah. the garden. Yeah. And the end result and outcome of that was fantastic. Thank I'm you. I'm wondering how do you, you know, within the 10 years time frame, how do you work with the community? Okay. And to what extent do you control that result in that creative, creative process to be able to make sure that you achieve a desired result? Well, okay, well the project for a start, if you work with the public, you can't really predict what the result will be because the public have a mind of their own, mm. which is on the whole is a good thing. And so 
mm. you give people a lot of freedom. That project was basically for garden societies in, Germ in, in Munster to keep diaries of their lives of these garden societies. Mm. And it was like a 10 year project and I gave them like what looked like a huge Bible, but it was blank and they filled it in. And it was about the ecological life and the natural life, but also the social life of the gardens. Mm. And then we had them, displayed them all, and then they were given to the city as a sort of archive of these garden societies, which are these para paradisen, paradisen, oh, I don't know how to pronounce it actually, but like paradise, these places, mm. you get these gardens if you have a flat and you, can, and, and you have this piece of land and other people have them around you and you keep them and they're the beautiful, beautiful places. And so I was very interested in that, in the lives of these gardens and the people within them because they're very super social as well. And so it's very interesting things happen there. So, but you, you just let, you set people off and let them do what they want really. But mm. it, interesting, because it was Germany, I think people really wanted to know specifically what I, especially with an older generation, what mm. are we doing? Mm. What do you want us to do? Tell mm. us what to do. And I was yeah. saying, no, just do whatever you feel is right for this book. And uh, that's a lot of the older gardeners found that very difficult. Right. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a very fond project. It's one of those, it was 10 years and I, you don't make money doing projects like that. You lose money, but it was something I was very happy to do. Mm. Hi. Um, I remember about 10 years ago, but it was at the Hayward Gallery, maybe 15 years ago, yeah. something like that. Um, it was David Trigley and, and Me. you had... Yeah, yeah, and you. And I was there and it was brilliant. And I just wanted to kind of share an experience of the... Uh, is it called Teenage Bedroom? Or yeah. Your so I think we're similar age or... And uh, I was in that teenage bedroom and just thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I was opening, you've got these cupboards, haven't you, that you, you open, it reveals things. Unfortunately, I'd taken my two little kids in there, one of those annoying people takes their kids to galleries. And we were looking through those uh, cupboards, kind of enjoying it, when suddenly on a kind of higher level... T-shirt. Uh, yeah, the Larkin quote suddenly... Yes. Uh, came out as a brilliant punchline yes. um, and, and just, yeah, really made me think about um, <laughs> the effect I might have on my little kids at that time. Well, I could explain. It was a T-shirt I made. I, was, I worked in a clothes shop in 1994, 1995, around here, and I made T-shirts with the, this must be the, the verse, mm -hmm. they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they didn't mm. need to, but they did it, and with the other verse on the back. And... Uh, I sold quite a lot, and I sold one to Richie from the Manic Street Preachers, which mm. he wore, which I didn't really know at the time, then I saw it later, but yeah, I was, I hope it didn't traumatize your children too much, but you know, I didn't write that text, remember, so. No, no, it was brilliant, and they bounced on your... Uh, uh, Stonehenge. Stonehenge at Crystal Palace. As Great, well, so it was pretty good. glad to hear it. Hi, um, I wondered if you thought about doing anything on Christianity or religion. The reason I ask is today I went to the National Gallery to see the St Francis of Assisi exhibition, which is very recommended. Yeah. And it was really interesting just to see his way his, his identity is shifting in terms of ecology, in terms of religious and spiritualism. But the show had a, allegedly, I didn't believe it, had encased his robe. <laughs> there was also Probably his... Probably not. Probably but, not, know. yeah. But also there was a sort of blow-up piece of his signature, <laughs> like his autograph, and yeah. all of a sudden it stretched, 
stretches the sure. and it, all of a sudden you talking today and I, it, it made me think you know that show although it was serious was sort of like seeping into something well, that I've, you might sort of look at I've made work, I've made relics I've worked with relics but not religious relics but I, I, I grew up in the, my parents I went to church every week for years and then I stopped and then but uh, as you tend to do but so I'm kind of steeped in that and in the iconography of it. And then I studied art history, so I was looking at religious paintings for like three years. So I'm very aware of the iconography and the effect it has on people and so on. So I make a lot of work that references religion. So for example, I did a, I did a, a, a wax effigy of Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch and burnt it as like a candle. And that for me was a religious artwork. And then in uh, 2009, I got a car that had been destroyed in a bomb attack in Iraq and took it around America and showed it to people. And that was me like taking a relic from conflict. Well, it was a relic from a conflict and showing it to people as you may have taken a relic around the country 500 years ago to show people the part of the true cross and so on. So I think I work within that world and I'm comfortable with it and I'm happy to talk about it and uh, in a way that other people might not be. But I, I I'm interested in the church. I mean, I'd, I'd make work for a church or a cathedral or whatever. I'm sort of, I'm not, and you know, and uh, you know, Stonehenge is a sacred site. It's a religious site, effectively, for a lot of people, and I work with that. So I think there's a lot of religion in my work. Now I think we've kind of run out of time, so um, just want to thank everybody for turning up, but also to thank you, Jeremy, um, and you, Michael. Well, no, my pleasure. No, no, but no. I mean, the not wanting to make speeches, but I'm going to. There's a fantastic essay that Lindsay Anderson wrote for Sight and Sound when he made the film If. Uh, it's called Stand Up, Stand Up, the essay. And he talks about English romanticism and he talks about protest. And he talks about having been to an English public school and about making a film about anarchy in an English public school at the time when Paris was burning mm. during the student protests. And I don't think it's overstating it, in my opinion, to say that your work is in that lineage. Right, um, thank you. It's a kind of weaponized romanticism, but it has a sense of humor and it has compassion. And it also has audacity. And I think those are great things to have in art. So thank you. Well, that's very kind. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.